Welcome to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition, where emergency physician Dr. Paris Lovett talks with other doctors about their specialty, and we focus on career questions such as what their professional life is like and how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. If you haven't already, we suggest that you first listen to the main Medical Murmurs podcast, featuring the same guest, before you listen to this one. Welcome to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition, where I, Paris Lovett, talk with other doctors about their specialties, and we focus on career questions, such as what their professional life is like, and how best to get into a specialty and develop a career. If you haven't already, I suggest that you first listen to the main Medical Murmurs podcast I recorded with the same guests before you listen to this one. Today, I'm talking with Drs. Mert Aragal and Joshua Schiller. They're both emergency physicians at Maimonides in New York City. They are also the co-creators and co-hosts of the Airway Stories podcast, which you can find at airwaystories.org. It's a great listen. I recommend you check it out. Drs. Mert Aragal and Joshua Schiller, welcome. Hi. Hi, Paris. You talked a bit about, in a sense, picking emergency medicine because uh, you felt that, in a sense, it would, it would give more space for you to do other things. You had these friends that were directors and writers, um, and you wanted to do more of those things. And at the time, you were maybe looking to compartmentalize. Yeah. Um, did you think about other specialties? And, uh, you know, along the way, I mean, how, what, what was it that clinched emergency medicine for you? I just, it was a process of elimination. I actually, I enjoyed like the pace of ER. It seemed fun. Um, it was, it was the one thing I could see myself doing. And as my sort of personality has matured and deepened and evolved, it seems like a good fit for me. Uh, I, I'm, um, they're naturally, I mean, and you know, you know what it's like. The ER is this kind of magnet for, these this sort of unlucky population of um, people who can't manage on their own or mentally ill or intoxicated or you know substance abuse angry people and on any given day a quarter of the patients you're going to see are just main you know just maintaining their mental illness um, and it and it's training and and you kind of uh, it takes a it, it affects how you treat other patients too. You know, the guy who wants narcotics um, informs your relationship to all the patients who are there in good faith. So it's challenging spiritually in a way. You have to you have to be very disciplined, and you have to um, kind of contort yourself sometimes to do unnatural things. And you know, I, I sometimes you you. You know, I have like a mild, mild Buddhist practice, or at least at some point I did. And and you hear about these, uh, all these Buddhist guys are like, oh, you know, compassion for everybody and universal light. And it's like, spend a spend a day in the emergency room and let's see what happens to you, you know? Okay, it's a real challenge. Um, but I think in the end, it becomes a kind of um, the personality that emerges from doing emergency medicine for many years is a very tolerant, compassion, yes, but boundaried uh, person that I think is, uh, I, 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 like, I like my practice of emergency medicine now, but it's taken a while. You are listening to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition.
I was wondering if for each of you, you could talk about who you think is well-suited to emergency medicine and who might not be. You kind of know it when you see it. The resident, the medical student rather, who uh, is enthusiastic, energetic, is able to um, tolerate ambiguity or at least is you know somewhat com- comfortable with it. Um, the uh, the person who ends up in emergency medicine is not the one who wants to do a narrow range of things all the time and develop extreme expertise in one narrow thing. It's somebody who has a, a broader uh, sort of awareness of what's going on with the patient. Um, and, you know, ER is about diagnosis, about figuring things out. And ultimately, in the, in the sort of advanced stages of emergency medicine, it's a lot of pattern recognition. Um, so it may be different than, you know, let's say somebody who goes into radiation oncology that might be a different different personality type, somebody who does the exact same thing with great precision every single time. You might find that a little boring in emergency medicine, or you might find it um you might find it a little overwhelming to to do something where you may not have complete expertise in something, but you you do your best and 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 manage uh, the best you know how. Dr. Schiller, I I agree. I I, I think that there. I, I think what Murd is talking about is um, uh, something that's not just true occasionally. It's true every day in emergency medicine. You're constantly having to deal with ambiguity and um, and unknowns. Whether it's because it's an undifferentiated patient who can't describe their own presentation very well, or something's lost in translation, you don't really have complete control over your environment. So it's a very imperfect world in which you're learning about the patient and trying to render care. Render care. And I think that, I think the challenge that Mert speaks about is something that is very difficult for most people who are kind of pre-selected to go into medicine, which are people, generally speaking, who are, who like to have really a very strong sense of control of their environment and their learning environment and, uh, and what sort of uh, parameters and constraints uh, they're working within to kind of figure out how best to proceed. And emergency medicine has a lot of those things missing. And so it can really, you know, put someone outside their comfort zone. I'm talking generally. When someone is an emergency medicine trained physician, they're prepared to deal with that ambiguity we just talked about um, and dynamic circumstances in which to render care. And so someone who's doing emergency medicine is prepared to do emergency medicine anywhere, whether they're kind of like seeing something happen on the side of the road or walking down the street or happening in someone's house. Um, And you're a doctor all the time. It's not just that you, when you're walking or when you're in the hospital. And so I think emergency medicine physicians are people who are just constantly vigilant to be a contributor to society uh, and, you know, sort of like heal the ills of society, whether they're uh, on a subway or, you know, actually doing their job. It, it, it's a nonstop thing. And emergency medicine is predisposed to kind of practice in a resource poor or incomplete type of setting. I want to push 
this question a little further. People who are do well are people who accept that they are going to have to have a certain element of their life, a certain amount of their life, some chunk, some segment devoted to their craft. And if they solely look at, P- at medicine, emergency medicine, as a means to kind of provide income or, you know, kind of provide a lifestyle for their family outside of the hospital, I think they they may be fine um, physicians in terms of doing the things that are medically justified, but they may not necessarily be very happy. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some residents you can you can see as they as they go through their um, training, they develop this cynicism and uh, expediency in how they take care of people, and you can just see that it's uh, you know they may get results so they get the job done but you can see that they're going to end up um in a in a more cynical place in their practice and maybe not be as satisfied in the long term so i do think that there's a moral component to um uh good performance in emergency medicine listening to you guys say this what's interesting to me is i i can't think of any specialty right now that wouldn't say something similar Right when you're when you when you're talking to anyone uh, who's involved um, in in selecting people for for residency, right? I've been talking to people from every specialty. At least when they're presenting it to the outside world, I mean, they all talk about this is not for the dollars, this is for service, right? And it would be nice to tease out what really differentiates emergency medicine. That's interesting. I mean, it's the, you have that perspective that we don't because you do interview people from many different specialties, and I think it's. It, I guess it's a, a astute observation of the obvious that if you have a sense of meaning in the work that you do, that it's going to be more uh, satisfying and rewarding. The thing about emergency medicine is if you don't have that meaning, it can be pretty brutal because the, you, know, you, you are interacting with this unlucky population in the emergency department who can test your uh, moral resolve, and uh, it's easy to become cynical. I think in ER, more so than in OB or even you know the controlled environment of the operating room. Uh, so, what is it about people in emergency medicine who have longevity? Is that your question? I guess I think you have to have resilience and flexibility, and be able to uh, you know let sometimes roll with the punches, know when to take a stand and when to, you know, accommodate. You just have to be more selectively permeable. And and it, I think it helps to have explicit awareness of this instead of just leaving it to your intuition, like to be, understand exactly what's happening to you as a person and psychologically as you as you practice the craft. Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. I also think that um, emergency medicine is one, you know, it's primary care. And so that you have to have a fundamental appreciation for connecting with your patient population versus other uh, forms of medicine where you don't necessarily have to have that. And emergency medicine is particularly important just because we need to be able to establish a connection quickly to kind of get to 
you know, the answers that may be that we we might be looking for in terms of why that patient's in the hospital in the first place. I, I think that that quick rapport is a really interesting and differentiated element of emergency medicine. You know, we we have to make diagnoses based on history and physical, um, at least as much as and maybe more than any other specialty. And unlike someone in primary care, we don't have a five-year relationship with the patient to leverage for that. Yeah. In emergency medicine, what ends up happening if you practice for many years and you see these patterns recur and recur, you just recognize the pattern. almost looks like you're using the force to understand what's happening. I remember I had a uh, a senior attending when I was a resident. I, it was amazing. He would go talk to the patient, listen with his stethoscope, maybe. You know, the physical exam is uh, maybe a little overrated in in, in the uh, achievement of a diagnosis. But And he would just walk out with the answer. And it was mystifying. But what you can't see is that he had years of experience seeing patterns and then uh, looking for that pattern. Of course, that is fallible. You can get tripped up sometimes. Um, and so you have to also be able to reason through difficult, you know, challenging cases. But um, that, that more so than any other specialty, maybe. I mean, radiologists, I guess, do it with visual diagnosis of the, you know, the X-ray or the CAT scan. But we're masters of uh, the um, pattern recognition, which is not a, Really, it's not very much a forebrain, you know, cognitive task. It's more like basal ganglia, like an unconscious understanding of things. And it takes time to achieve that, but it's kind of a wonderful thing. I mean, in your, when you, when you, when you say that, uh, I think you said that uh, we're, we're all superheroes of a different variety in the, in the hospital. The, the emergency doctor is a special kind of superpower, with, you know, to, recognize these uh, hidden patterns. Well, you know, it's interesting because this touches on a, a big set of paradoxes for me in emergency medicine. So you talked about the fact that, you know, there's so much variety that you have to see hundreds and hundreds of different presentations, right? That don't fit neatly in a box. But what's interesting is our job is to put them in a box. We take someone who says they feel they've got butterflies in their stomach, someone who says that they've got a scratchy feeling in their throat, and we turn them both into chest pain. Right, <laughs> right, you know, and and six percent of what comes in our door gets gets converted into the chest pain box, right? You know, we turn something else into a flank pain, even though it doesn't always describe as flank pain. They may say it's actually down in their groin or in their testicle. And so, what's interesting is because we are trying to take incredibly non-differentiated things and actually put them in boxes, we then have to work in the opposite direction and avoid cognitive biases because you're relying on cognitive biases to do pattern recognition. You are relying on them. Otherwise, you couldn't do the packet, you know, the patent recognition. And then you have to kind of simultaneously say, am I being too reductionist? Like I've just turned this guy who says he's feeling a fluttering in his chest and I've turned him into a chest pain guy. But what do I, do I need to get out of that, that train of thought and recognize it could be something very different from the chest pain algorithm? So it's kind of like you're at odds with yourself. Well, I was going to say, I think what you're, I think something that you're touching on that I think it really can be an important uh, determinant is being able to um, understand and speak a, the language of your patients. Uh, and I don't necessarily mean like knowing Mandarin or, or knowing, you know, um, Spanish, Urdu. I'm talking about, you, you know, knowing what, what kind of language, um, 
uh, a patient's going to speak, even if they're speaking English, such that, you know, you sometimes may be determining whether a person actually has pain anywhere, or if that pain is sort of a manifestation of anxiety that is being caused by something else that um, might cause you to go down a totally different path than what the chief complaint states on the chart. And so what I'm saying is that one of the ways, going back to your question, you know, how, how you can determine who does really well in this craft, I think, you know, people who have a really sort of innate sense of other people and uh, knowing how, so, like having that sense of empathy when someone comes in and they're clearly upset about something and they're tearful and, you know, they're complaining of this pain and that pain and this and that, you know, and they're everything that you ask them about, yes, they have it. And you sort of have to weed out what's real versus what's not, um, takes a certain amount of intuition that you're just sort of given, you know, that you just sort of have innately and also just paying attention to who your patient population is and how you relate to them. And I think, some people just have a natural gift for relating to others and some people really have to work at it. And that's why, you know, emergency medicine is tricky. You know, uh, there's people out there who are just superstar test takers and they, you know, they can, you put them in a controlled environment like we have talked about, you know, where, where medical students in particular and, you know, certain other types of medicine type minds are very comfortable working within a very set environment. Um, and they're perfectly fine, but get them out into the real world where there's ambient noise and, you know, someone's not talking completely about what they really mean and they have to rely on skills that they may not have. And so emergency medicine is really a, a great combination of being, having sort of, um, you know, the medical knowledge, but really the applicability of that medical knowledge based on a social, um, rapport that you have with the world around you that is sometimes very difficult to, um, to train. And, and that's why the pay, the, the, the residents I find most difficult to remediate are not the ones who are lacking medical knowledge. It's the ones that have problems with say professionalism or just kind of like, you know, having people skills. Those, those types of issues are really difficult to train because most of the time, they just don't have the innate gift that other people have to be able to relate to um, their colleagues and, and their emergency room. You know, I, I interviewed um, a psychiatrist at uh, George Washington. He's called uh, Lorenzo Naris. And he was talking about what makes him a better psychiatrist and also gives him fulfillment and longevity in his specialty. And he said, the key is to stay curious. And I think that might apply to us too. You know, if you don't come with a curiosity about the person, uh, I think you can burn out. Totally. I, I t absolutely agree with you. I think that like, that's, I, I see it myself. When I'm starting to get tired, I'm just like, I don't, I'm not interested in like, you know, another, you know, you start just simplifying things in your mind and you can start sort of labeling people when in fact, uh, it's unfair and it, and it doesn't render great care. And I compare that to when I'm energetic or I've, you know, have like, you know, I'm, I'm coming in with like a, a, like a good open mind. Everything's interesting. You know, I'm naturally curious to my patients. There's a big difference between the beginning of a shift and the end of a shift. Yeah. There is a big deterioration in a lot right. of the 
cognitive and affective faculties by the end of the shift. So you may you may be a better doctor at the beginning of the shift. And at the beginning of the shift, you may be doing some of the things that you mentioned earlier, Paris, where you're you're checking your biases, you're pad doing pattern recognition, but then you're saying, wait a minute, was there a is there is there is there more complexity here? Um and at the end of the shift, you're like, okay, I can just put this in a chest pain box, boom, disposition. And so I think uh, building stamina, I think, is a good good uh, skill as well over the course of your career. Um, there was a study uh, recently uh, on family practice, which showed that at the end of a shift, uh, for the same indication, doctors are much more likely to prescribe antibiotics because they lose the energy to go through the, the discussion it takes to not prescribe antibiotics. Yeah, there was an article in, there was an, are, there are multiple articles in the surgical literature where outcomes are better at the beginning of the day. That's just human nature, you know, there's, there, these faculties have, uh, there's like a resource limitation that you, you expend something, you, you end up uh, expending some finite resource. Um, but hopefully, hopefully, as you go through your career, learning how to stay fresh during your shift is actually one of the things you learn. Yeah, taking a break. You are listening to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. Tell me, guys, you know, what's your advice for someone who does want to get into emergency medicine? on how to best, you know, how to maximize their chances of getting in? Uh, so I think that, um, I think whether medical students know it or not, there are certain kind of, um, um, what would be the word, um, rote mechanisms that show emergency medicine interest. Being part of like an emergency medicine interest group, um, and, you know, being part of, um, you know, like EMRA, which I, and other student groups like that, I think they're great. Um, uh, but I think if you really want to differentiate yourself, um, try and think of your pursuit of emergency medicine in the context of something greater than just the discipline itself, how emergency medicine fits into uh, its applications to society. like. You know, like how emergency medicine fits into an application of global health. And I and not saying just global health to the interviewer, but saying, oh, well, this is how I think uh, global health is facilitated through emergency medicine. And this is something that I've done and and think of something and, and, and pursue something specific. Explore those worlds. Uh, you know, whether it's um, social emergency medicine, like how emergency medicine can facilitate itself to the homeless, uh, to local communities of resource poor demographics within, you know, places that are in, in medical school or some places they've grown up. Um, those types of applications with real sort of real experience, whether it's just volunteer or um, doing some work, um, uh shadowing somebody, um, that shows a real interest. I think that's much more, um, proactive than, uh, what you'll typically see from an emergency medicine, uh, interested student. Yeah. I mean, Josh is 
worked in residency leadership. We've both both interviewed many applicants in the past, and you know some things are irreducible. How well you do on the boards and your grades; those are important. Uh, and then there's also you know the interview and whether you, you feel like you uh, can can sort of jibe with the person. And there's a rapport. Um, I mean, there is a real social component to everything. Obviously, it's not just numbers. And so, getting finding a mentor in medical school and uh, almost uh, seducing the mentor, like getting them to be interested in you, to take an interest in you, um, and then they they write you a letter. I mean, those things are soft skills that serve people in life more broadly. Uh, but if you don't have those skills, you know. Uh, just do your best and try to be a nice person during the interview. Uh, I think that that's, that goes a long way too. Be kind, ask questions, smile. And don't forget that when you're at, at the uh, residency dinner the night before, people are paying attention to you and taking notes. It's, a, it's sort of an audition. Well, you know, we're not the only one, but we certainly are a specialty where performance as part of a team is, 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 is absolutely essential. And people do need to see how you act with others. It's true. Very true. It is a team sport. I, I think most specialties think that, but we're, you know, it's really, really important. I mean, you live or die by your, your ability to work well with, uh, not just with nurses and techs, um, but other attendings and people in other specialties. Yeah. I would also add to what Mert said in terms of the interview. I find that interviews are a lot, they can be a very, uh, I, I understand that they're nerve wracking um, because they're formalized, but they don't, they don't have to be formal. Um, they don't have to be uh, formal exchanges of information in that. Yes. You'll be asked some certain questions and, and people will be paying attention to the answers. But by being yourself and being comfortable in your skin um, really translates um, very well in a one-on-one -on -one interview. And most of the time, not all the time, but most of the, most of the interviewers are people no, not so different than the people who are being interviewed, except that they're a little older, but they were once in that place. And the, the interests are pretty much the same. I mean, we're all interested in emergency medicine. We get into the... We, we, we were interested in emergency medicine for some of the same reasons. And so it's really not a, it shouldn't be such an intimidating process for students. Students should look forward to being able to discuss their interests with people who are interested in hearing about them. And that's really kind of the approach that I think uh, if students took that approach, it becomes a lot less intimidating as a process and a lot more of uh, a conversation. And that's those are the interviews I find are most comfortable. Just a conversation to explore this person's interests, not a grilling, not looking for like catchwords. Um, you know, it's uh, it's really just a discussion to, to explore that person's interests. Yeah, and that'll be different from program to program. I mean, I think some places are a little more rigorous or in the way that they interview and they they try to they ask you clinical questions or they try to undermine your balance and see how you react or things like that. At, at our institution, we kind of just sit down and talk to the person, just make sure that they're, you know, not too Asperger, maybe a little Asperger, who cares? We have, we have guys <laughs> like that too. I mean, just as long as they're kind. I mean, that's what's important to us. Yeah. Well, why don't we talk briefly about what are just some, 
some real red flags uh, or whatever you call the opposite? What are things that you just instantly feel, uh, uh, you know, you've experienced in interviewing? Presumably you've both interviewed scores. And for myself, it was a decade uh, in academics. Um, I certainly you know, interviewed my share. Um, I wonder if my core interests were any different from yours. I mean, I, it sounds like maybe we have a lot in common. I mean, I, you, certainly, you certainly know that you need to look out for people who can meet patients where they are, right? And if you detect that people look down on patients, on any particular group of patients, that can be a red flag. Um, if you sense that they just can't connect to people, that they may not know how to connect to or may look down on or treat badly members of the team, people in other specialties, whoever it is, that, that, that could be a real problem for them. And if they're in your program, your program. Um, and then you do look for people who at least will be able to develop what we talked about earlier, that ability to develop pattern recognition, but also to be aware of people that shouldn't be put into a particular clinical box. Um, and, uh, overall, maybe people, uh, I've often had this line that they will work hard and try to do the right thing. I mean, if you're just trying to look, say like broadly, what are we all there to do in a shift? We're there to work hard and do the right thing. Um, and, and, uh, anything that gives me a tell as to whether I think they're going to do that was, was kind of what I was looking out for. I don't know how you guys feel about it. Yeah. I think anybody who's angry and defensive in the context of an interview, that's a red flag. Um, you should know better than to do that, to reserve that for when you're working clinically, <laughs> once, you, once you've gotten your uh, replacement. Um, but, you know, listen, an in, in interview is a, uh, in an artificial environment and people get nervous. And at least when I interview people, I try to take that into consideration that you may not be seeing the real product. You may be just seeing uh, somebody who's very anxious about presenting some some uh, version of themselves. And so I try to put people at ease by being authentic, but uh, not all interviews are like that. So um, I guess just try to be as comfortable as you can and be nice and don't get defensive and uh, show uh, your sincere interest in the field and and also be humble as well. I mean, if uh, if you think you're God's gift to whatever, that's fine, but, you know, it, it doesn't come off well, at least at our program. You are listening to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to review us on iTunes and other forums. You can also visit medicalmurmurs.com and sign up to hear about new episodes. So moving on a little bit, um, when you're, you're already in the specialty, maybe in residency, maybe you're new attending. What advice do you have about how to build a career for sustainability, for satisfaction, for happiness, for fulfillment? I think the one of the first things to pay attention to is what you are innately interested in. Um, and, and you don't have to um, bend your interests necessarily when you're asking yourself, what am I interested in? How do I... How do I how do I see myself applying emergency medicine in the world that's going to make me happiest? Um, and let the sky let the sky be the limit. Like really, just be true to yourself to see 
you know, what, what your dream job could be. And you have to use your imagination because I think a lot of people just have never had the opportunity <laughs> to imagine an ideal situation like that, at least in medical school, because you're just getting crunched all the time. And then in, and then in residency, it's similar. But during the course of residency, what you really need to do is start looking towards like how you want to live your life. And that necessarily uh, could mean um, how many hours you want to work, um, where you physically want to work, what kind of landscape or multiple landscapes. Um, do you want to have a family, not a family? Do you want to stay in academics, not academics? And you have to ask yourself a series of questions. I think for me, I tried to kind of imagine what I would look like, what my life would look like, just a scene. Um, and then sort of boil that scene down to what sort of components would lead up to that sort of version of myself 10 years in the future. And then you have to, you can be creative. Emergency medicine is enormously um, dynamic for an imaginative person to create a world that fits into a career if you're, if you're creative. I mean, and I say all this um, because uh, there are the opportunities to kind of like go down particular tracks, whether it's, um, you know, going to a fellowship or going into admin. There's very particular fellowships and, you know, everything from ultrasound simulation, diving medicine. We all know what they are. Um, but I'm talking even beyond those kind of postgraduate uh, training. Try and imagine what it's like to kind of like take that fellowship in, say, ultrasound and say, you know, I'm also interested, you know, you could think I'm also interested in like how emergency medicine fits in, you know, in the world like outside of America. And then you could say, well, ultrasound really could play a major role in uh, practice in a resource poor area. And, you know, you could start looking at some of the people who are doing that kind of stuff in the field. And there are you know, once you start looking, you'll see there are little pockets, little communities of people who have similar interests. And so once you start kind of like getting, you know, forming some expertise with that, then you can kind of find a spot for yourself where a department may need your, that expertise. And you have to be like, at the, bo at the bottom line is you have to be creative and you have to have energy to make that creativity work for you in terms of a career. Yeah, I think what you're going to do as a junior attending really depends on whether you're at an academic program or in the community. At the community, I can't really speak too much about that. I, mean, I guess it, there's some, pretty much you're doing shifts. You may pick up some a, a little bit of an admin role, but for the most part, you're, you're working. Am I right? Do you know? Do you know if that's the case, Paris? Like, I think you've worked in the community as well. Yeah, I've done both. Um, it, it depends on the place. It depends on the place. I, you know, I think that there's, uh, you know, it, community jobs are also not without education. Uh, there are people who've had most of their career in the community and they really enjoy uh, taking an educational or a mentoring role with nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, you name it, EMTs, paramedics. If you're in an academic environment, there are some well-trod paths that you can go on that make it easier for you for instance research there's it's uh it's there's a clear sort of uh you know path in research where you you you, you do research you get protected time you advance in the institution you you know there are 
clear guidelines for how to become an associate professor and then a you know professor, and it, it, it's easier and it's accepted and um, you don't have to f- fight the uh, this uh, battle of you know creating your own your own thing. Administration similarly is a, is one of these pathways, and if somebody decides, oh, I want to run an emergency room one day, or at least I I want to you know be involved in, in administration at some level, you. Uh, you have a clear uh, set of things that you do and you get to where you want to go. And then there are other things. For instance, when I started out as an attending, I became involved in medical education for medical students. Um, and, and by the way, in the, in the prior category of defined pathways, I would, I would put residency leadership, you know, working with residents and becoming a residency director, but working with medical students, I, I ultimately ended up running a course uh, at, at Downstate, where my uh, duties were not very well defined, I ended up doing everything. It was overwhelming and without a lot of institutional support. And I found myself after you know 15 years of working, um, kind of uh, always doing uh, the things that needed to be done for the institution, not advancing in a way. You know, I didn't become associate professor, professor, and that was partly my own oversight, but. Just to say that it may be easier if you want to advance, if that's what you're interested in, to stick to those predefined uh, pathways. You know, what's interesting is having to talk, having done these interviews now with, with a bunch of different specialties, it seems like there's two themes that, that, that cut across all the specialties. You know, one is find a practice environment that you like, and then the other is differentiate in some way to something that can be an avocation or a passion. You know that you have to have some differentiated pursuit within your specialty, and everyone seems to say that. I mean, you're you're essentially saying saying that whether you're in in, in private you know practice or uh, uh, you know or, or academics that you differentiate and you find something other than the straight shifts and seeing the patients that come in the door. I think that's true of many different jobs. I think that there's a lot of form. You know, like particular training that can allow you to do a job like of an accountant and you could just hammer away and do that for your entire career and be a reliable source of um you know production for your employers or you can kind of like be creative and you know think of different ways of accounting or economics or finance or medicine or or what have you baking you know cookies uh, can be more amenable to your life interests. I think you really just have to be proactive and and think creatively. And I think it's very challenging because uh, you know you're talking to a group of people who are coming out of medical school and then pre med you know training. So you know six you know more or less six years of basically going through a meat grinder where you didn't really have a lot of choices. You were told to jump through this hoop and that hoop. Um, for six years or, you know, four or five, six years or more. Um, and you did it. And, and that's the nice thing about medicine. Uh, if there is a nice thing is that, you know, if you do what you, if you do what you're asked to do and you, um, and you, and you succeed, you'll get a, a, a professional career that will be, that will pay your bills and put food on the table for the rest of your life. Um, but it may not necessarily make you happy. So you have to kind of take that extra leap and 
do the things that you weren't necessarily asked to do in medical school or in your training program. And, um, and that, takes, that takes some imagination. Well, you guys are obviously doing that with your podcast. That's but one of the things you guys do outside of the defined paths in academic emergency medicine. That's right. Yeah, it definitely adds some another level of something um, to the to the daily practice. It's nice in emergency medicine to have your daily practice seeing patients, but then that other thing that that impels you forward. And I think. Emergency medicine is a lot, a lot in the same way. I mean, you know, you're grinding a lot of the time because it's a relentlessly, um, well, at least before COVID, thankless job. Now, I think we're getting a lot of thankfulness uh, from the world, and it's a beautiful thing. But previous to that, um, you know, you had to rely on your own sense of uh, meaning to your work. And I think it, when you apply that, when you apply emergency medicine to your interest, it kind of gives you, it reinforces why it is that you're doing the work that you're doing. You are listening to Medical Murmurs, Medical Student Edition. So that's a great point to transition to what was going to be my final question, which is, can you guys talk about what you see as the highs and the lows in a life in emergency medicine? I think if you can imbue your work with meaning, that it, it improves it and it, it makes it uh, uh, easier to do, more fun to do. And that's something that has to come from you. I mean, as Josh said, we're, we're getting a big uh, help during this COVID pandemic by the inherent meaning to the work that we're doing that's provided by society. And people are very proud of, you know, being heroes and, and whatever, and you're getting the, the, the sandwiches or whatever shipped to your ERs. But in general, I think you have to uh, create some sort of meaning there. Uh, and the, so the high, I guess, emergency medicine is wonderful because you do a lot of the diagnosis in the in the hospital somebody comes in you figure out their symptoms and you do the diagnosis you order the mri or the cat scan or whatever and then you you know typically admit or discharge them and other people manage the diagnosis that you've made so that's fun uh and the downsides of emergency medicine um are that you're often the focal point of people's anger, frustration, fear. You have to learn to manage these difficult negative emotions. Uh, it's often mentally grueling over the course of a shift, as we mentioned. You, you know, are pushed to your limits cognitively. Uh, you deal with, you know, difficult circumstances, and you have to have some resilience. And uh, it's sort of uh, it, it can be challenging that way. I think one of the perspectives that we lose oftentimes in the emergency room is that we we see these patients, they come into the emergency room, we do what Mert was talking about, we kind of work them up, diagnose them, send them on their way or, you know, follow up or, or admit them. And what I think sometimes gets lost um, when we're kind of doing that all day, all week, you know, for months on end is we, we lose the context from which, you know, these patients are coming from. And, and every once in a while, I get a, 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 I'm reminded uh, that these patients are actually, come from a life that's not just in the hospital, 
which is where we see them. And so, you know, you're walking down the street and you see a patient uh, that you might have had, and, you know, at the grocery store or something like that. You know, like you see them as a, as a person, as someone who's like living their life just like you are. And so they're, you know, it's much more of a relatable uh, relationship as a, you know, one human being to another. And you'll, and you'll, they'll recognize you and they'll say something like, thank you so much. You know, you, or, or thank you, you know, the, the, like the, the, the relative of the patient will recognize you and they'll remind you of the work that you did. Thank you so much for what you did to my dad. You were, you know, you were so kind to him or whatever it happens to be. And then you'll ask about the patient and you'll have this kind of like really sort of like wonderful relate, you know, relationship for a moment where you um, are part of that fabric of society that they, the patient comes to rely on when they come to a hospital. They, they come to rely on getting care. And I think emergency medicine gets short shrift in terms of its sense of continuity because, you know, we send them on their way and we never see them again, theoretically. But in real life, we actually do see them again. And so when, I'm, when I do see them, uh, I find that really sort of um, a wonderful sort of real plus to the work that we do. And then the downside of it is, like Mert mentioned, I think that we oftentimes have, um, you know, this, you know, we, we sort of have this meat grinder where the, the, the society's judgment or, or expectation of us is to deal with these huge volumes of patients that come into the emergency room and render care as fast as we can. And, and, and it's terrible because, um, we can't do it fast enough if it's really busy. And some of the patient's plights are very serious, um, if not the, of utmost seriousness. And so it's really, it can be very difficult to negotiate those constraints. You're put into a double bind where you have to do a great job in a very short amount of time and an overwhelming uh, crush of you know people and it's an unwinnable situation so that's that's a you know depending on your the shop where you're working um that can provide a lot of stress i think that's the biggest stress of emergency medicine it's not really dealing with the challenging medical presentations you kind of get used to that over time and you're trained to do that it's like dealing with these unwinnable situations of a crush of patients everybody's upset and angry and equally you know uh has equal uh, right to good care and you just can't do it. And then like Josh has mentioned in the past, there's a little old lady who's uh, gesturing you to come over and you just sort of pretend you didn't see her because you have 20 different things to do. And you just got to feel bad about it uh, yourself, that moral injury uh, thing that people talk about. I think that, you know, there's no, you are like the last line and the first line. And depending on where you're working, like, you know, there's that, that scenario. Residents kind of talk about, or medical students, when they say, they imagine how they want to learn emergency medicine. It's like, I want to be that person who's going to want to know how to do everything and treat anything that comes in the door. But when you're actually in that position, it's enormously stressful. And all it also requires a sort of sense of how you can manage your team that you're not going to find in like, you know, ABAM General's uh, manual. You've got you to think for yourself. You've got to think on your feet. You've got to be resourceful. And you have to use your common sense. And I think something that Mert had mentioned earlier about like, um, 
you know, the kind of people who really do well in this job. I think also, in addition to what Mert had mentioned before, I th- I've noticed um, are people who really keep it cool, um, really sort of like don't let the stress get to them outwardly, and they can talk and manage their team without showing that kind of stress so that people can follow clear directions um, that are laid out in a non-stressful way, even if the walls are crashing down. I find that that is an enormously um, productive uh, way of managing your team. And it's and it's not for everybody. It takes an enormous amount of self-control and self-possession to right. be that way. And also, let's not forget, that you're well rested and you're well fed and you're, you know, your, your actual, the instrument of yourself is well tuned, you know, cause I, any, even the most uh, calm person, if they're sleepless and hungry is going to turn into a, like a quivering bag of uh, whatever anxiety. But the other, the last thing I wanted to mention, and it's very important uh, in emergency medicine because it's kind of getting taken over by these private equity firms that don't really represent the best interests of the patient and certainly not of the doctors. And this is something to watch out for as we move forward. I mean, these, these uh, you know, financial, basically financial institutions are using uh, medicine as a cash cow. And, and if you are working at a shop where one of your, you know, your boss is one of these people, or beholden to one of these people, they're not going to have your back and you feel more stressed and it's not good for patient care. So at some point, I hope that uh, physicians can come to some understanding that they actually do have power in these, in these, uh, in these environments. And I, um, it's actually very important for the, for the field and, and not just emergency medicine, but they're buying up other practices as well as uh, apparently. Well, Dr. Mert Aragol and Dr. Joshua Schiller, thank you very much for joining me on Medical Murmurs Medical Student Edition. Thank you so much for having us. Paris, thank you. This is Medical Murmurs Medical Student Edition. This podcast was focused on career issues of particular interest to medical students and prospective medical students. We suggest you also listen to the main Medical Murmurs episode featuring the same guest, discussing a wider range of issues and sharing stories for a more general audience. Check it out.